Hello and welcome to another special edition of Hit the Lights Plus. Today, um, unfortunately, Gary can't be with us, but never mind because we're actually joined by Electrium and we're going to be discussing the topic of AFDDs. So um, I'll hand over to you, Lee. Yeah. Um, hi, Pete. Um, just to introduce ourselves, uh, my name's Lee Swanick. I'm Head of Domestic Circuit Protection for Electrium. And joining with me today, I've Simon Rowlinson and Dave Enifer, who are two of our domestic circuit protection product managers. Brilliant. So um, thank you for coming along. Very grateful. It'd be nice to obviously get some information and rack your brains on these new devices. So um, just the first question I had is, who actually are Electrium and what do you do as a company? Electrium are part of the Siemens organisation. So um, we obviously trade on the Electrium banner. But Siemens are a, are a global company as well. Um, but just to focus on, on Electrium, you're probably more familiar with the brands that we manufacture. Uh, the main brands are Wilex, Crabtree, Appleby uh, and Volex. We have three operational sites in the UK. Uh, our head office is based at Cannock, just on the toll road. Um, and we have a manufacturing site in Withenshaw in Manchester, which is our centre of excellence for circuit protection. And we have our distribution centre over in Wigan. Um, so all of the products that you purchase through Electrium have, have come through through the Wigan distribution centre. Um, at Electrium, we, we run the business as three product streams. So we have a, a DCP, a domestic circuit protection product stream. Uh, EWA, which is our electrical wiring accessories. So that's all of your, your plugs and sockets and switches, etc. And CCP which is commercial circuit protection. So that will give you products from, uh, say, a, a 3 amp MCB up to a 63 amp single pole MCB, right the way through to uh, three phase distribution boards, four way up to 24 way, uh, 125 amp, 250 amp distribution boards, right up through panel boards, um, up to 800 amp. And then we do factory built assemblies uh, of panel boards as well. And that's on our, our industrial side. But the, the team that you've got on here today is the domestic circuit protection team. And within my team, obviously, I have Simon and Dave, who are our product managers. But we've also um, an, an R&D department and a production engineering department. So we're very much controlled in-house with the products. As domestic circuit protection, we look after your MCBs, RCBOs, AFDDs and RCDs and also the combinations of all of the consumer units which we manufacture under the Wilex, Volex and um, Crabtree. Well, that certainly sounds like we've got the right team on board to discuss these. Hopefully so. Hopefully yeah. so. Oh, brilliant. So, no, lovely big company. Nice to have someone that obviously houses a lot of the stuff. Okay, so okay. moving forward then, getting on with the AFDDs, basic part of that, I guess, is to discuss the different types of fault that we can expect to um, encounter with an AFDD. There are, there are, there are two, two types of faults. Um, obviously, the, what we're talking about is arc faults, but, but first of all, arcing um, occurs in, in most electrical circuits. Uh, as, you, as you're probably aware, every time we, we switch on a light switch or you run the hoover or your electric drill, the nature of that circuit will, will create an arc. So what we need with the devices they need to differentiate between what is an electrical arc 
and what is a, a, an electrical arc fault. So we often see the phrases um, arcs and sparks. There's a number of videos that, that are available on YouTube where people are trying to recreate um, what are arc faults. But in general, what people are recreating is, is sparks or contact arcs. So what we're trying to get to is we're, we're looking at the, the two types of arc faults that can occur. And generally that comes down to serial arc faults which can be caused by say a, a loose connection or a break in a cable so that's an arc fault in the line of, of the load if you like uh, along the, the, the line conductor that's a serial arc fault and also a parallel arc fault which uh, is often caused by compression of cable where we've maybe trapped a twin and earth cable and we can get an arc fault where the insulation's very thin across maybe the live and, and neutral conductor they're the different types of uh, faults that can occur in electrical circuits. Okay, so from my understanding of that, a serial arc would happen along the line of a single conductor, but a parallel one happens across two conductors. Yes. Brilliant. Okay, so just moving back then, something you touched on there about the arc and the spark. At what point does an arc become a spark or a spark become an arc, and what way around is that? If you think about what, what the, the AFDD device is, is trying to do, um, it, it needs to differentiate between the two, uh, an arc and an arc fault. When, when does an arc, when an arc fault become dangerous? Um, we need to have a, a number of facets of the criteria that, that tell the arc fault detection device that, hang on, this is, this is a dangerous arc. So in the case of um, a light switch, the, the AFDD is, is looking for five elements of that circuit. It's monitoring the circuit. A, a switch switching on off wouldn't meet all, all five of that criteria. What tends to happen if we've got a, a loose connection, let's say, the, the, the cable in that loose connection can start to, to heat up and carbonize. And it's when the arc actually becomes stable that's when we've got a potential problem because a stable arc can can create some heat and i'll bring simon rowlandson in on on this one simon would you like to explain the the, the path of an arc fault um in terms of creating a carbonized path as lee, lee said um sparks tend to happen in um open free, free air i suppose which isn't ionized basically forms Strikes the strikes the spark or the arc and then dissipates very quickly. But with a uh, a dangerous arc, what what actually happens is um, it it, become, it basically forms itself into a hot spot because there's a, a reduction in the um, in the conductor, or there's maybe a gap in the in the conductor. And what the arc tries to do initially the the arc the dangerous arc is a spark, and it keeps um, Sparking away, jumping, jumping across the gap, or uh, and slowly or quite quickly can heat up that localized area. As it heats up, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter, and then it causes the insulation of the cable or, or any any material around that particular hotspot to oxidize and carbonize. And as it carbonizes, that carbon then acts as a, a, an additional conductor for the arc to form across. So the arc actually becomes very stable and increase in intensity. 
So just so to compare there, Simon, would that be similar to like when you turn on a light switch, it's almost like a flashover. It's a very quick burst of energy and it's gone. Whereas with an arc, sort of maybe comparing it to the old Tesla coil, when you can put your finger on the outside of the glass, it creates an arc and it is strong enough to maintain its shape. Exactly. That's exactly it. And it's the carbonized path that can be continuously in place. As as its arc is, is continuous, then it gets hot and hot, and obviously that's enough to ignite the insulation material and any any, any combustible material around it. Well, and my understanding of it is that when it goes from a spark to an arc, it's when it has enough magnitude of energy, as you said, to then cause this continuous line. So what is the minimum expected sort of magnitude of energy to sort of withhold that arc? Well, the requirement um, for the product standard um means that an AFDD must be able to test down to a minimum of 2.5 amps. Um, that's to, to BSEN 62606, which is a, the product standard for AFDDs. Um, however, the, the devices we manufacture will actually operate a little bit lower than that. They'll operate down to 1.5 amps. But what we've got to consider within an electrical circuit is back to the, the serial and parallel arc faults because we've been asked on a number of occasions if it's a low load circuit then surely we've not got an issue with, with arc faults because we're, we're running you know one or one or two amps but the serial arc fault will have um, the effect on the serial arc fault will be affected by the load on the circuit because it's relative the magnitude of the arc is relative to the load on the circuit but if you have a parallel arc fault it's completely independent of the load on the circuit. So although you may have a low load circuit, if you have a parallel arc fault, then it could it could be much higher than the loading on the circuit, which is causing you the problem. Is that because it'd be working off a fault or a short circuit current as opposed to the load current? Yeah. yeah okay. So like I said, I see um, in the draft for public comment on the amendment two, it says that domestic lighting circuits could perhaps be exempt. But from what you're just saying there, perhaps that's not a good idea itself because if you have a short circuit, you'll have the same issue. Yeah, the, the domestic lighting circuit, it's an unusual one. I understand the reasons why it's being omitted um, from the draft because the, the theory is if you lost your lighting circuit, then you could be left in a hazardous area, um, a hazardous condition, obviously, with, with, with no lighting around you. Um, which is kind of similar to what would happen with a, an MCB circuit or an RCBO protected circuit. But um, if I could add something here, I think for the for the whole question surrounding the the topic that we're discussing now, the important thing is to distinguish between what we're looking for. We're talking about arc fault detection devices. They're looking for arc faults. These are conditions of fault, not necessarily contact arcs and sparks and um, the kind of thing that you will see from opening contacts. We're looking for sustained arcs over a period of time that can result in ignition of cables. I think there probably is some relevance to the fact that, you know, as Lee's mentioned, the standard will test down to 2.5 amps. um, And and that level, that value is there for a reason, because that's deemed to be by the standard level of energy at which dangerous arc can occur. But, but in truth, there are merits for arc fault detection devices across all ratings. Are you saying to take that down to a certain, you know, even lower than perhaps your one and a half amps? 
Well, we go down to we go down to one and a half amps with our devices, which is well in excess of what they are required to, to perform. I must say, I think it's a brilliant thing that you do go above and beyond the recommendation there. But at, at what point do you think it would become a nuisance more than a sort of deterrent, shall we say? What if you went to one or maybe even half an amp? Would that be going too far? Because of the way the device operates and the, the software that's built in, the, the nuisance tripping factor, uh, obviously any, any arc fault, uh, an arc fault will have a signature and the arc recognise that as being a fault and, and a potential danger. So if we're just looking at from a nuisance point of view, um, the AFDD is detecting what's considered to be a dangerous arc. It would ignore anything that, that doesn't meet that criteria. So if we're operating a light switch, as, as we've discussed, um, that's that's a low magnitude, but it's not an arc fault. And that would have a different signature than an arc fault. And the AFDD w would ignore that to avoid uh, any nuisance tripping. And my um, understanding of how the AFDD detects a fault is that it's a distortion on the AC waveform. So if that is true, I was just questioning because um, I've heard a lot of white goods can have different and varying distorted sine waves. And that as we discover new technologies, we may be introducing different faults. So would there be any need to upgrade the firmware on these devices? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in there. Um, okay, the actual AFDD, the, the, you, you're right, it, it does look at the AC waveform and um, other criteria, but it, its biggest uh, detection criteria is really high frequency noise. When, when a, Even when a spark is generated or, uh, or any arc, it, it will admit high frequency noise. But the thing with a, a continuous arc or a, you know, a stable arc, actually affects the high frequency noise there'll be um particular signatures within that high frequency noise there'll be gaps for example be certain peaks and troughs there's be certain criteria based on time as well so as well as looking at all, all the all the other criteria there are sort of five elements that the um, afdd is looking at and when it meets all these five criteria that's this when it initiates the tripping signal for the, for the device. So when we're selecting and installing these devices, do we need to be aware of like the total harmonic distortion of the equipment, going back to like the PV equipment and perhaps other loading? Okay. Well, high frequency noise is prevalent in all all electrical systems. I mean, you know, as soon as you switch on a washing machine, as soon as you switch on your vacuum cleaner. There'll always be high frequency noise generated within within the electrical system, even even at generation, when DNA or the the electrical generator it starts up, there will be high frequency background noise. But when you get an actual arc, it's it's sort of um, operated at a very high frequency, so you can almost see how the, if you like the arc the arc fault is generated at a much higher level of frequency compared to the sort of background noise and that's what the microprocessor is doing all the time it's 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 taking a reference point of this this is the current high frequency background noise and then in, in a matter of microseconds it will see if they've been introduced a massive peak in, in, the, in the general background noise so all the time it's monitoring so i think i think as well you have you have to consider that siemens 
of which we are part have been at the front end of um, developing art fault detection over many years. Um, the technology contained within the present format of the art fault detection devices that we offer within Electrium is, is, is right at the, the front end of, te of technology on the market, if you like. Yeah, I must admit that's probably a good point to raise that there is no AFDD. They're not. A, they're all the same. They all work differently. They all have different parts and processes and stuff inside them. So just Absolutely. because you're buying one, it doesn't mean it will cover all. I, I think the, the the technology that we've got built into the Siemens AFDD is proven technology. Um, AFDDs are, are relatively new to the UK market, but they're not a new product to, to Siemens. Um, America and, and on the continent have been using AFDDs for upwards of, of 20 years. Um, so the technology, you know, is well is well proven. No, that's good. So just going back to my understanding of what we were just saying was that obviously there is no such thing as a clean AC waveform. There's always some sort of distortions. So that nice waving line we get taught at college isn't actually how it's measured on with a proper oscilloscope. It'll, um, it'll obviously have these varying distortions, but the AFDD and what is caused by an arc will create a distortion that is of such frequency that it'll go beyond the standard white good range. There are always going to be elements of any electrical installation that can adversely affect the normal sinusoidal alternating waveform. And they can affect not only AFDDs, they can affect other protective devices as well. There's been a lot of discussion recently about RCDs and the adverse effects of um, half-chopped or, or rectified waveforms. So, yeah, it's the, it's, it's the nature of the beast. It's the world we live in. We introduce a lot of things into our homes now that um, weren't there before in, in, in previous years. So we could have potential... Just obviously, as a, myself, an electrician that works on site, we could end up installing one of these devices and every so often it might lose trip because of the equipment that we have on the system. At the end of the day, what you need to do is install the best equipment to perform the task. And if you're installing an AFDD, you need to perform, install the best AFDD for the job. If you like so for instance electrium afdds are afdd rcbo types so you've not only got the technology associated with the afdd element but you've also got um type a earth fault protection there as well so you've got the best of both worlds and you're looking at a, a product to provide separate electrical protection in all instances of electrical fault at the best level you can apply to that installation and I can completely agree with that. I think if you're spending the money on these devices, which in no way are going to be cheap, then you may as well spend the money to get the proper piece of kit. You don't want to be spending cheap money and just have any old sort of rubbish. You'd rather Absolutely. something that was going to do the job. I think that goes right the way through the installation and, and, and down to the actual appliances, because I think that's what you're alluding to, Pete, the actual appliances that are going to be connected to the circuits, you know, if there's a change there. But they're also governed by regulations as well uh, for electromagnetic interference, etc. And and we know that if, if we're meeting those standards, then we're in line with the AFDDs. So we need to be mindful about the, the, the type of uh, accessories that you're actually plugging into those final circuits as well. Because we do know there's 
there's product on the market at the minute that maybe don't meet those um, British standard regulations. Right, so that would be something, because again, for an electrician, you're going into a domestic house, you can do all you can to ensure that the cotton has got the best consumer unit with the top spec AFDDs, all the surge RCBO protection, but then they could go on online and buy any old piece of equipment and plug it in, and then they say, oh yeah, that board you fitted last week, it keeps tripping out. So is there anything out there just to check with a certain standard then that the new appliances and stuff meet? Well, all, all products should should meet um, EMC compliance standards. Um, so that's are, what I'd be looking for, the EMC yes. compliance. Mm. Yes, but there, there are, you know, scrupulous manufacturers out there that don't quite meet the, the criteria. I mean, that's the case in, in, in all industries, you know. You, you'll get people selling you, um, you know, unbranded car parts, for example, which aren't recommended by... The particular manufacturer, and but the brake pads aren't aren't as good as the actual original specification from the original manufacturer. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair comment. You know, you've got to be careful with what you're buying, and as you said, it can have an effect on your installation. But but we 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 I mean we we will admit we we have been to some installations where we um. So, so, for example, some cheap LED lighting w- w- was being installed, and it didn't comply to the e- EMC standard. But it was being sold and bought from a reputable uh, wholesaler in the UK. You know, yeah, and, because it's and, doing that, it's obviously in, inputting that extra distortion, which is affecting the AFDD. Exactly. But we have got a bit of uh, we have got a bit of uh, a monitoring kit that can detect this in particular installations. So if electricians do have problems, we, we can attend site and loan them this equipment that can detect this um, high frequency generated noise that's not coming from a, um, a, a, a stable arc. Right. And could you see that sort of equipment that you were just mentioning there becoming part of the day-to-day electrician's toolkit? Um, yes, I think it possibly it could. But it, obviously, it we are talking about sort of equipment to be like you say it's a bit like an oscilloscope you know there's a microprocessor in there it, it, it's almost like a replication of all the equipment that's within the AFDD itself right okay well no, that's all very good information just uh, moving back a bit though because we we're talking about obviously it's a single module device in it it's got overcurrent protection overload protection and that but it's all in this single module the first question I had on that was, what would you want to trip first? Obviously, if you had a live to earth arc, would you want the RCD or the AFDD to trip? I think what you're, what you're looking for there is there are, there are three different devices built into that one enclosure, if you like. You, you, your MCB is designed to trip on uh, overcurrent. Your, your RCD element is designed to trip on fault current. And obviously your AFDD is designed to detect arcs. So it really depends on the nature of the fault uh, that, that that's occurring at the time. If, if, if it was the trip, is there a way to detect what was the cause of the trip? Yeah, that, that's that's one of the beauties of the, of the device. Normally, if we go to an RCD or, or an MCB at the moment, that's in the off position. I'm, I'm an electrician by trade. Many a time you've, uh, you've been called out to a property and... And you know that the lights have gone off, but you need to start fault finding because you've got no visual indication. But the the actual device that, that we supply 
has a, a visual indicator light, an LED light on there. So if you went to the to the AFDD and it was actually flashing once as a as one slow repeated flash, that's going to tell you that an arc fault has been detected. If if the uh, LED is fl flashing twice, a repeated twice flash, then it's indicating that you've actually had an over voltage within your property. But if the device is repeating uh, a three times repeating flash, that's actually indicating that it's it's tripped on a residual arc fault. So you've got an indication of where to start with the device. Well, that's very helpful. And does that come with a sticker or something you can put on the consumer unit? It, it does. Um, there's, there's a reference uh, again. Whenever you buy the product, um, you, you're actually supplied with a sticker to put onto the consume unit as a, as a reference, as a user guide. Uh, and they're, they're available online. Um, if you wanted to have a look on, on the website, you'll, you'll see that uh, as part of our instructions on the website as well. Yeah, brilliant, because that's not actually part of the standard to do that, is that? That's just your sort of diligence. Yeah, no, no, just, just ask. It's nice to see, obviously, manufacturers taking that extra step to ensure the electricians are looked after. But OK, well, so, so we've got these three devices into the single module unit. Have you in your testing found any problems with the build up of heat? I write this sort of back to the introduction of GU10s way back sort of 10, 15 years ago, when they still get really hot in an LED form. And is there anything you'd recommend to the installer, perhaps like an air gap, like a contactor to sort of counteract this issue? The, the AFDDs are tested as as part of a uh, a type tested assembly within a consumer unit. There's no requirement to have um, air gaps between our fault detection devices for when they're in normal use. What would you say was normal use? Sorry, does that include in a, in a simultaneously typical typical household installation? There's there's no need to there's no more need to have air gaps between and AFDDs as there is between RCBOs or MCBs. No, okay, so if even if it was a fully loaded breaker, I know some manufacturers, Hager and Luden, for examples, they specify in their instructions to allow an air gap or a derating factor. That's, that's, that's applicable in all electrical installations for any manufacturer's consumer units. If you have adjacently fully loaded devices, then, then yes, there are elements of derating to apply. Um, I would say a normal situation. But no, that, definitely that, not. That, that applies equally to all to, um, devices. Yeah, so like domestic houses now, you'll quite often now see an electric shower and a car charger and induction hob. So sometimes, obviously, people run them chronologically. You've seen it a few times. They can get a bit toasty, shall we say? They can get warm. If you've got someone in, obviously, if you've got um, someone using a shower and you've got a 40 amp breaker, a, a shower is going to pull, pull pretty much near its rating, but it's going to be a short time load in the in the grand scheme of things. Um, other other elements will pull not such large loads for longer periods of time, but they may be there may be thermostatically controlled equipment on there, so the loading is up and down in its own right. So normal guidelines apply. Um, if you have adjacently fully loaded breakers for protected periods of time, the same rules apply to AFDDs that would apply to miniature circuit breakers or RCBOs. Thank you. I wasn't going to drop that in there as a manufacturer issue. It is certainly a design issue. It's just something for people to think about as they are installing these devices. 
As you say, it's, it, it's part of the design for the circuit, the actual application. Right, so uh, since the introduction of um, electrical vehicle charging in the domestic premises, I mean, certainly designers really do need to think about uh, the, the diversity factors that apply to the consumer unit, and uh, especially if they're installed in an electrical vehicle. You now it's a seven kilowatt charger, you know, it's 32 amps, 42 amps. So it could be really most of the night if, it, if you're charging at night time. So the, these are new things to be considered in when you're designing a consumer unit. Yes, no, completely. It's um, definitely something similar to uh, load curtailment would definitely help with that. Um, another question I just thought of is what about selectivity of these devices? If you had a distribution circuit, then going into a subboard in a garage or something similar, the the AFDD should be at the origin of the circuit. So even so, if it's a subboard, if you had a let's say 40 amp on a 10 mil SWA feeding a shed down the garden, then you had an additional consumer unit with three circuits. You'd put them on the three circuits, not the distribution. Yes. 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 Yeah. 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 The the idea is that the the AFDD is is trying to read, if you like, and un understand the final circuit. For instance, if you put the AFDD at the beginning of the submain, you would have three mixed circuits that it would be trying to understand, if that makes yeah. sense. Mm -hmm. So with it being at the origin of the circuit, it's specifically looking at what's happening within that circuit. So that's why it needs to be at the origin. Um, and then how do you test them? I don't know if someone can talk about maybe your manufacturing process on how you ensure that they are working well, as they should well the afdd has a as a self-test function um and it is a requirement of the product standard but what we do with with our afdd is is actually continuously tests every 15 hours and the, the reason it's a 15 hour cycle it means that the afdd isn't being tested at the same time every day in a 24 hour period if that makes sense because um, the use of a circuit changes over time, so the, the, the loading on a particular circuit at, say, nine o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning of a kitchen, where you know we're cooking breakfast and the kettle's on, the toaster's on, etc. Uh, that's going to be completely different at maybe three o'clock in the afternoon. So the idea of the AFDD being on a 15-hour cycle means it, it will, over a course of say a week, pick up the, the, the circuit characteristics right the way through the day. So what the AFDD um, self-test function does, it consistently uh, tests the circuit and, and effectively tricks the electronics into believing that there's a fault. It recreates electronically uh, a signature, which would say this is an arc fault, and it, and it tests the reaction of the circuit. And the, the final output of that circuit would say, OK, we've, we've now got a fault, trip the device. Obviously, the trip the device signal uh, doesn't go through through the system and, and trip the device but it, it constantly does that on a on a 15 hour cycle and it does that um, within a very very short length of time yeah i must say i really like the idea of the 15 hour period to detect under all different times certainly a problem with rcd testing on a condition report example is that it's not tested under load Whereas that's when all the problems are going to start. As soon as you get a bit of DC leakage or something, the device might not trip. Mm. But on a an isolated circuit, the RCD will obviously work as it should. Mm. So having that 15 hour on the AFDD is a really nice sort of add-on. It's 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 an incredibly 
smart bit of kit, to be honest. I know me, me and Simon were discussing this a, a couple of days ago. Um, if the arc fault, while it was going through its its testing cycle, if it actually detected that there was an arc on the circuit, it would stop testing the circuit and it would operate under arc fault conditions. So it's it's an incredibly smart bit of kit that year that we're working with now. Because one of the things that we that we consider, and I know we're going to come on to cost later on, but because an MCB and an RCBO and an AFDD look similar on the outside of the of the box, if you like, they're very different internally. We're looking at very different components and, and, and a lot of in the AFDD then we get in say an mcb which is a quite a basic device really yeah no no that's that's true say especially when you come to sell these to your clients and all of a sudden your board's gone from around five to six hundred pounds probably just over a thousand pounds for an afdd board um just onto circuits that you would install an afdd on obviously we've already spoken about domestic lighting and similar lighting circuits but the amendment to draft states it's recommended for circuits up to 32 amps. But how do you feel about a 40 amp breaker for you know the likes of a car charger or perhaps an electric shower? Well, as we stand at the moment, AFDDs are a recommendation. And what is a recommendation? And we've had this conversation with a lot of people. And a recommendation is 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 to meet your requirement. If you can't meet what you're you're recommending in terms of the electrical wiring, it's suggested that you need to provide an alternative solution which would give you the same level of safety. Now, in terms of the wiring regulations at the moment, there isn't a there isn't a method out there that can give you the same level of safety as using an AFDD. So where we're suggesting that AFDDs are recommended, unless we can find an alternative solution, we really should be using them. So I'd suggest the same still applies on a on a 40 amp shower circuit. Yes, we we would recommend that you use an AFDD. And as a company, what is the highest current rating AFDD you produce? In a single module device, it's it's a it's a 40 amp. I think if you look if you look at the draft for public comment, the draft for public comment is certainly focusing on the the areas in which the probability of a of an arc fault occurring is is greatest um, and that's around your household appliances and so forth so I think we're looking at 32 amp um, ring circuits radial circuits outlets for things that you are plugging in and so forth that that's the initial focus of the draft for public comment but as I said we do have products that fall outside of that range both at the lower end with six amp devices and then at the higher end with 32 amp devices sorry with 40 amp devices yeah that's fair enough an interesting topic you've just raised there about the ring final circuits because I know a lot of people say oh they don't work they don't work and I can understand obviously the magnitude of energy will be dependent on the uh, resistance in the circuit which is proportional to the fault but um what are your takes on that again this this comes back to understanding what we're actually looking for if you think of a, a serial arc fault so a serial arc fault on a ring main is that going to happen on a ring main circuit no you can't really get a serial arc fault on a ring main circuit because the energy in a ring main circuit won't flow across the arc fault it will flow down the opposite leg of the ring 
if that makes yeah. sense. So yeah, that's perfect sense. You wouldn't you wouldn't have a serial arc fault on a ring main. However, a parallel arc fault which we discussed before, that can happen at any point on a ring main. You you could still have a parallel arc fault where we've got pressure, you know, where we've got maybe cables trapped underneath the floorboard, creating a parallel arc fault. So you can get parallel arc faults on ring mains. If we cut through the cable of a ring main, what do we create? We create two radial circuits and both parallel and serial arc faults radial circuits. And then if you also consider what's plugged into a ring main circuit, that then becomes a radial off a ring main circuit. And we know AFDDs operate on serial arc faults on radial circuits. So to come back to your original question, do, do AFDDs work on ring main circuits? Yes, because there's lots of different, there's the two types of different arc faults that can occur at different points on the ring main, be it part of the ring or be it on um, outlets attached to the ring main. Yeah, I must admit, I think there's going to be a lot of circuit design changes over the next few years as these become more and more sort of widely used, especially with um, division of installation. I think the number of circuits, even though they were starting to go up, it may come down a little bit to start meeting, obviously, the cost of these devices. And I think it might start to slowly phase out the ring final circuit as a whole anyway, even though it will work on a parallel arc. But Obviously, to get the full benefit, it's nice to have the serial arc too. Mm. I, mean, I think what, what I, I suppose if I was looking to to throw a single statement over it, I would say that an arc fault detection device will detect an arc fault where it's possible for an arc fault to occur. Yeah, I completely agree. So, um, just obviously, I know this is domestic, but is there a three-phase sort of solution available for these? It's not something I've heard of thus far. Um, we don't have a, a three-phase solution at, at the moment in terms of a, a three-phase in old money, showing my age in, in red, yellow, blue, uh, three-phase. So um, we, we don't have that solution at the moment. Are you looking for a, a single-phase solution to fit into a three-phase distribution board? Um, that's something that um, we can look to develop. Like a 10KA version? Yeah, Okay, and then, um, yeah, it's just the cost, really. Obviously, they are very expensive. I've seen them ranging from around about 150 to about £250 each. But um, do you see or foresee a cost decrease and what could be the driving force behind that? I think it's inevitable if, if we see this with, with RCBL. Um, back maybe, maybe 10 years ago, a little bit more, if you consider what Electrium was selling in terms of we were probably selling one go for every 20 MCBs that we sold. Uh, obviously, the 17th edition came on board and, and people were using a lot more main switch with RCBOs um, to, to give you independent control over those circuits. And, and our ratio MCBs to RCBOs now roughly is about four to one. So you can imagine our volumes have increased overall in the devices that we sell. Um, and you've seen the, the the price of the RCBOs maybe fall to a, to a, a reasonable level. And I think you, you will inevitably see that with the AFDD. There are a number of, of key manufacturers, our, our peers, who, who also produce AFDDs. And, and as they start to be embraced by the market, I'm sure competition will, will, will start to creep in as well. And, and you will see uh, the price inevitably fall. 
but the what's going to drive uh the, the cost base of the product because we've already discussed the very very different products from an mcb or an rcbo they are technology laden i think simon mentioned about the microprocessors and oscilloscopes and the likes which are you know part of the circuitry that's built into the afdd what will drive the cost on that is clearly the volume and when the uh, the market embraces afdds then we'll start to see the the, the volume increase uh, i know we already People have looked over the pond at cost of AFDDs or similar devices to AFDDs in America and on the continent. But if you look at the American market for AFDDs at the minute, that's in the region of 10 to 12 million poles um, sold sold in a year. And we're, we're nowhere near that sort of volume in the UK at the minute. But obviously, as, as the technology is embraced, we'll start to see that um, increase. But the big thing, I think we we've we've got to have a we've got to keep touch with reality really with a with with cost because are we looking at cost or are we looking at value? Because there's yes, there a point I was going to bring round. Obviously, these aren't just devices to make us spend all our hard work money. They're there to save our lives and do a job. Yeah, one of the one of the quotes I often use. Um, the majority of people who will install a burglar alarm or an intruder alarm, if you ask yeah. any alarm company, they'll say the majority of those people have installed a burglar alarm after they've been burgled. Yeah, yeah. That, that's often the driving force for people to go, crumbs, I've, I've been burgled, I'll go and fit an intruder alarm. I must the, admit, the I've had similar that, experiences. People have had a surge and it's knocked out some items in their kitchen. So then they fit an SPD where they didn't want to pay for it before. Yeah. And and the cost that you're now putting into upgrading your property, that cost has not changed from if you would have done it in advance. But what you have lost out on is the devices that have been lost or stolen, you know, due to a surge or, or you know, you're, you're an intruder breaking into your property. So it, it, we knew, really need to touch base with reality and say what what value are these devices bringing, and that that goes for RCBOs as well as AFDDs as well. You know the the technology is there to to make homes safer. Um, in terms of the the RCBO, the technology is there in terms of the AFDD to to make homes safer, stopping electrical arcs in final AC circuits, and if you if you consider other devices around in in a domestic environment if you were to replace your your gas boiler how much would a gas boiler re, uh, cost to replace pete what would you suggest could be looking at a couple of grand didn't you yeah um and and to quote one of my colleagues uh you know that that's a kettle that's a glorified kettle <laughs> so you know there, there is a bit of a reality check i think we need to have in in terms of the the, the cost and the value that we're actually getting for the for for the products yeah it's all down to the so the understanding of these devices and realizing their value it's not just hearsay and all the rest of it they've been brought in for a reason and they are here to obviously save lives and save obviously buildings and all the rest of it so it's all about looking to companies such as yourselves that offer the cpd and all the information learning about them and being able to implement and use that in your day-to-day -day work if you consider the afdd yeah. that we that we offer it's it's an afdd combined with an rcbo that that rcbo element is a type a rcd 
So, so it's also it's single pole and switch neutral. So in that one package, you, you've you've met your requirements for um, double pole isolation for the, for the likes of a you can fit that on there. You, you've you've met the requirements in that it's a Type A RCD, and that will give you nine milliamps worth of design leakage. So we're not considering spreading four or five circuits over one RCD on a maybe a, a high integrity consumer unit because that's another consideration of the regulations. You, you've now got that all wrapped up in an individual circuit. So it does tick a number of boxes that not just for the AFDD but also for the RCD requirements of the regulations and for the independent control that's required for the likes of maybe lighting circuits with smoke detectors. Probably a bad example with an AFDD, but where you need to maintain that independent control over a circuit and provide RCBO protection, you can do that with the AFDD in in, in a one module device. I think it's, it is worth looking at the Certainly the AFDDs that we have at the moment in, in that light, um, we do tend to be, um, because the nature of our business, we're attractive to all the technical elements of it. But as Lee mentioned, on top of the, um, the arc fault and earth fault elements, you are still retaining your overload protection, your short circuit protection, your miniature size so the, the footprint is the same size as an mcb you still have your switch neutral um which is certainly um a, another element that i think is worth noting so what you're actually doing is providing um all elements of final circuit protection per circuit and under any fault condition that device will trip and will disconnect that circuit completely from the source of electrical supply it will isolate that circuit so it's the, it's the, it's the whole package really um, and we, we shouldn't look uh, overlook the the less glamorous elements of the device if you like which are also very important just the last one as well i'm pretty confident that they are designed to fail safe as well aren't they so if the afd would stop working on the self-test for whatever reason it doesn't just stop all protection it then becomes an rcbo and then finally an MCB, is that right? Not not for the MCB side, but what you've got with the, the AFDD, uh, obviously in normal operation where the device is functioning well, it'll go through its self-test function all, all of the, every 15 hours. If it then detects um, there's, there's um, an issue with the AFDD, what will happen is the, the AFDD will operate the, um, the, the dolly. It will switch the device off we've now got an indication that there's been a fault and once we've reset that device and we've switched it back on there'll be a, an indicator light which indicates that um, there, there is an integral fault with the AFDD circuit it will still allow you to have supply on the circuit but will operate as an RCBL so you've got an indication there so you're not left without any power um, but it will give you an indication that uh, the, the AFDD circuit is, has failed and the device needs to be changed. Well, yeah, well, thank you very much for that. It's really insightful and I think there's a lot we can take away from that. And obviously, thank you very much for giving us your time and coming on and helping us understand further what these AFDDs are going to do. Thank you very much for listening and uh, see you on the next one.